You're listening to At Large, a global affairs podcast brought to you by China U.S. Focus. Thanks for joining us, and here's your host, James Chow. It's a great pleasure to welcome you today to the start of this new podcast series, through which I hope to share with you my thoughts on a rapidly changing world and the part that China and the U.S. play in it. I'm very fond of both countries; their cultures, as much as their politics, fascinate me. But more so, the belief that between them, they have the capacity to move mountains for the good if they choose to do so. There can be no better time to do that than now, when the world is experiencing enormous challenges and the way our identities are being questioned and, in some cases, upended. Who are we? Where do we belong to? Well, I've been asking myself those questions in the run-up to today's first official episode. In fact, we have three months' worth of archives for you. So visit our website or the app you're listening to this will have those episodes. So from where I am in Hong Kong, this is episode one, but also episode twelve. The U.S. trade war with China and many other countries has become a new reality for many of us. And in the last few weeks, has jumped off the hard news pages into a softer, more nuanced space. One story in all this has gone viral on social media: a ship called Peak Pegasus that was stranded at sea for well over a month. At its simplest, it became a symbol of a casualty of a disagreement between two governments. Now, Peak Pegasus is a forty-three thousand-ton bulk carrier said to be owned by J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The reason why it's in the news is because it was carrying twenty million dollars worth of U.S. soybeans. The carrier was. Literally racing to Dalian, a port city in northeast China, to try and pip a 25% hike that the Chinese have put in place in retaliation to another tariff hike that the United States had started off with. So that's how the story unfolded, and unluckily, Peak Pegasus just missed the deadline by a couple of hours, I'm told, and so the ships and the soybeans went into a holding pattern for well over a month, making. Endless circles in the water and racking up a huge bill in doing so. Now, Peak Pegasus is not the only story involved here. The soybean cargo. Owned by Louis Dreyfus, a merchant and trader of agricultural goods, is just one of many shipments that was under pressure. There was a rush to beat the tariffs. You know, these tariffs were uh, announced and, and scheduled, and traders knew that um, they were coming. And so, you know, from from what we're hearing, there's been a rush on both sides to to get your exports,、uh, you know, through the border, through customs, before those tariffs come into effect. That was Simon Lester, the Cato Institute Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies, and we're going to hear from him again a little later. The reason why it went viral is because we could track it live. Of course, this is the age of the internet, the age of social media, and it was out there for everyone to see on different apps. I chose one app called Marine Traffic, and it showed the ship finally docking and unloading those soybeans on August twelfth. But as I said, not before racking up over four hundred thousand dollars in extra ship charter fees. I think it costs an extra twelve and a half thousand dollars a day times 
a month and more. And that, of course, doesn't include the 25% hikes that these soybeans are now subject to. It's a symbol of the tussle between the US and China, and it reminds us that as they lay one tariff on top of the other, there are businesses, there are people, there are communities who are getting caught up in between. I've been scanning some of the comments on social media in reaction to the Pete Pegasus story. Some people are laying the blame squarely at China's door, calling what it's done pathetic, and others saying, you know what, no, it's the United States, because it triggered the tit-for-tat tariffs. But there are, of course, others who say, you know, whether it's China or the United States, they wouldn't want to be the one to consume those soybeans because they've been sitting there on that ship for an extra month. Now, it's a fascinating story, but I tell you, it's a really sad one as well. It shows that the trade war is not a cut and dry story. Obviously, there are a range of opinions. And increasingly, I think, over the last few weeks, those opinions have become much more emotional because these two governments, whoever you think is right or wrong, can continue one-upping each other with more and higher tariffs. And that's what I expect them to do over the next couple of months. Uh, Like we saw with the soybeans, you're going to find ordinary people paying the price. And it's not just soybeans and it's not just China. It's also coffee beans and it's also Canada. Canadians buy about $58 million of coffee beans that are roasted across the border in Washington state. Washington state is a major exporter of coffee, including, of course, uh, the big brand Starbucks. As Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau promised at that contentious G7 meeting he recently hosted, Ottawa has put in place its own 10% tariffs after the US laid down the first gauntlet. It's got coffee producers in Washington state very, very worried. And one of them is Emanuela Bizzari, a roaster who exports to both Canada and China. So that's a double hit for him. He calculates that at the current rate, the trade war will cost him a quarter of a million dollars a year. So what he's doing now is thinking long term. We do want to move some of our production maybe in Canada, uh, become local, um, since you know we already have offices over there. But uh, we do want to probably incorporate uh, into Canada and become you know, a Canadian company also. With two years worth of fees that I would pay, I could open a small operation in Canada. Mr. Bizzari is not a corporate hire. His company is Cafe Umbria, and it may be a wholesale coffee roaster in Seattle. But if you look at the inside story, it's a family business that goes back to the 1940s to Perugia in Italy, where his family's from. So it's a highly personal story, and it's not just about the dollars and cents for him. This is why these stories are really so important. This is At Large, your weekly podcast on China, the U.S., and the world. Keep listening. Welcome back. I'm going to stay with more of these stories because there's another case in point. A farmer by the name of Derek Sawyer tweeted this last week. Thanks to tariffs, this load of fencing cost me 35% more than it did in January. That's a $3,000 theft I can't stand because tariffs have also ruined the value of my soybeans. Now, Mr. Sawyer posted those words together with a picture of metal fencing on the back of a truck. That triggered over 800 comments, likes and retweets. And I'm going to share just a slice of that. One person said to him, well... Stop giving our money to China or others. Support your people. Mr. Sawyer thought about it, wrote back, says the person from Canada. 
He also said in reply to another comment, you realize free and open trade is typically a GOP staple. I do recognize trade practices from China et al need to be dealt with, but believe tariffs are an extremely destructive tool. According to his Twitter profile and website, because I don't know him, Mr. Sawyer is a fourth generation owner operator of a family farm in McPherson County in Kansas. And we wish him and other people who find themselves in this awful situation all the best of luck. There's no shortage of people lining up to provide their predictions on how this trade war is going to play out. Here's just one more take this week. Mark Ross is the founder of Caracal Global. Hold on to your seats, he says. I don't think we're in a good place, uh, sadly. Uh, I think we talked earlier this spring. I didn't think we'd ever get here, but here we are. And I don't really see how we're going to get out of it. I think the, really, the business community should prepare for more tariffs going into 2018. I don't think we're really going to see resolution until 2019. First of all, some people are calling it a trade dispute, others are calling it a trade war. I oscillate between the two. If I'm trying to stay optimistic, I say trade dispute, because there are always reasons to be hopeful if negotiations continue. But when I learn about people like the Sawyers, that's when I think that trade war is more appropriate because it's hurting people who don't have a place at the political table. And in that sense, their fate is being determined by perfect strangers. Every week as the situation further unfolds, so my opinion of it develops. But in short, I think it's going to be very difficult for China to withstand an onslaught of tariffs from the US. At the same time, though, I think this, it's not just China. The United States is fighting a couple of fires in parallel with the European Union, with Canada, with Mexico. And when we think about these countries, they represent many of the United States' oldest and staunchest allies. And in a way, you could say China is one of its allies as well. They're the number one, two economies in the world that have been doing great business with each other over the last decades. And if you think back historically, China was an ally during the Second World War. So politically and economically, they should have their interests aligned, but apparently not. So what I think is going to happen is this. When you remember that many of these countries are some of the oldest US allies, this face-off is going to reshape the political order beyond what it has already. The world as we know it in the post-Second World War era is simply no longer. Don't try to find it. It's not there. And I think the efficient governments that will be successful will be those that don't chase after history and nostalgia, but will be the ones that quietly establish a new normal in the background by which to operate. Interestingly, I was watching Trish Regan on Fox Business, the intelligence report, and she was looking at the numbers at economic growth in China, saying, of course, that it's been much faster than the United States in recent years. And of course, one perfect explanation for that is that China only recently rejoined the world and rejoined the global economy. So in a sense, its improvement in economic growth is going to be much steeper for that one reason alone. She notes that, but she also asked this, Granted, they, meaning China, were starting from a very different place, but they've got a lot of people, and if that success continues in an outsized way compared to ours, where do we wind up 10 years from now? And I think she really hits the nail on the head with that because she's looking beyond the trade war and she's looking at how the world will look like in the future because of that trade war. I'm going to finish up with one more viewpoint on what we can expect looking ahead. Simon Lester again, he's at the Cato Institute, and he was asked this week to cast his fishing line into the dark, murky waters and to try and predict what's going to happen in the future 
because of this trade war. And I think that's a very difficult position to be in because no one knows what's going to happen next week, let alone in a couple of months or perhaps even a year from now, which is how far Leicester looked to. This is what he said in terms of predicting the wider, longer, deeper impact. For the longer term, if we go forward with all the tariffs that have been talked about, uh, you know, so we have $50 billion to be in place by August 23rd, and then another $200 billion announced, and then the suggestions of another $200 billion, these are uh, imports from China to the U.S. If all of those go into effect, I think we're really going to start to see some harm to the U.S. economy, to the global economy, to the Chinese economy. Um, I, I think, ideally, what most people would like to see is some sort of negotiation taking place to get us out of this uh, trade war. Um, and you know, hopefully, at a certain point, uh, there will be pushback from constituents in the U.S. and China saying to their governments, hey, you know, can you do something about this? Uh, can you get us out of this? Simon Lester there. And this is where we reach a fundamental point that as much as this is about trade and politics, this is again as I've said, about people. And whether you're a soybean farmer in Missouri or a coffee producer in Washington state, I think at some point you're not really going to care whether this is a blue or red issue or a US-China issue or who started it first and who retaliated second. I think at some point you're going to be thinking about what's best for yourself, what's best for your family and what's best for your community. And politicians who need votes to get themselves into their jobs should heed that very quickly. You've been listening to At Large with James Chow. For more episodes, you can go to ChinaUSFocus.com forward slash podcasts. You can also subscribe at Google Play Music, SoundCloud and more. Thanks for joining us, and thank you for tuning in.